ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, hi there. Happy Friday. Selena Green with you for The Country Hour today. Well, coming up in just a moment, it'll be an early fire danger season start. Well, for some of you, depending on where you are in the state, I'll be joined by the CFS to discuss that in just a moment. But also you'll find out how things like your old empty milk cartons are being turned into a new fencing product. For some farmers and a lot of the rural retailers have reached out to us and said, look, they just struggle to get hardwood droppers. Ours is, is a very, very cost-effective alternative while sort of doing something good for the environment. So all, all our stuff is recycled plastic. More on that story to come shortly. But first today, warmer and drier conditions throughout spring mean the 2023-24 fire danger season will start early in six of South Australia's fire ban districts. The South Australian Country Fire Service has declared the season will start early for the Flinders, North East Pastoral, North West Pastoral and the West Coast Districts. So the start date for those districts I just mentioned is the 16th of October. This will be followed by the Mid-North and York Peninsula on the 1st of November. The fire danger season dates have also been confirmed for the Eastern Air on November 1 and also for the Lower Air Peninsula on the 15th of November, which is in line with previous years. The CFS Director of Community Risk and Resilience is Alison May. She joins me. Thank you for coming on the Country Hour. Thank you. So an early start for six of these districts, just how earlier than than usual um, are you bringing these fire seasons on? Uh, so it's approximately on average about two weeks early for those that um, are starting earlier. And it's... Um, Really, rather than the country fire service, this is the um, result of assessment at the local level from the bushfire management committees in each of the 15 regions, uh, as well as the fire prevention officers, the information that they feed into us, and then our chief officer um, brings that together and makes the decision. So that's a bit of the process of, of how this decision is made based on uh, what the conditions that you're getting reported back uh, of what they're like out there? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So what we're hearing is that the, and certainly um, what the Bureau of Meteorology is telling us is that La Nina is well behind us so that wet weather that we've experienced in previous months is rapidly switching to below average rainfall and higher than average temperatures. And so that combined with the quite large fuel loads that we have because of the amount of rain that we've had means that we've got a lot of vegetation out there and that that's drying out quite rapidly. So that brings with it an increased risk of fire. And we have had um, some quite warm and dry weather in recent weeks across some parts of the state that would have uh, made a pretty quick drying out scenario for those areas. Yeah, absolutely. That was already uh, starting to happen. It's um, surprising how uh, quickly soil dryness indicators uh, are seen. And yeah, of course, we um, saw the, the hot northerly winds drying out those fuels. So those uh, districts that will be starting on the uh, on the 16th and then the Mid-North and the York Peninsula on the 1st of November, given that sort of time frame now, particularly for those on the land, 
what sort of work should they be doing between now and then before that season starts? Yes, I mean, above all, just really, and I'm sure that most of your listeners are aware of what fire districts they are in, but making sure that you are aware of that, that you're um, clued in to all of the sources of information for the um, CFS warnings. Um, The SA Alert app is a fantastic platform to um, be able to set what your areas of interest are so that you can get those daily updates on um, what the fire danger ratings are, making sure that you really understand what the fire danger ratings mean and what you can and can't do, depending on the rating. Um, But we also encourage people to think about not just where they live, but where they might transit through or where their family and friends might live as well. For rural and regional residents, we would say, as always, um, cleaning up your properties, particularly around structures, creating fuel reduction zones, creating safe paddocks uh, for livestock, installing irrigation systems is always a good thing, ensuring particularly that gutters are clear of leaves and fine fuels in any structure, whether that be your residence or shed. Now, for those who in those areas uh, would be coming into harvesting, or may have already started, but it, it does tend to coincide with around that uh, start of harvest time, mm. What once those fire danger uh, seasons are in place, uh, what is it particularly around harvesting that, uh, that you want people to be aware of? Really, one of the um, most important things is machine maintenance. So we do see that sometimes crop fires are started from fires starting when there's a build-up of the uh, offcuts and fine fuels combined with oil from the machinery. When that gets stuck um, and gathers on um, particularly the undercarriage of machinery, that can be an ignition point for fires. So making sure that your machinery is really uh, well-serviced, regularly stocked and cleaned. And um, when you are harvesting, making sure that Um, all grain producers know that you have the means on hand to put out any uh, fires if they do start very quickly. If it's a a windy day with a high um, grass fire danger index, then um, the fire can take off pretty quickly. Thanks so much for joining us on the Country Hour today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Alison May there, Director of Community Risk and Resilience with the Country Fire Service. Now, if you're unsure which district starts when, this and plenty of other useful information is on the CFS website. And for those of you in the remaining seven fire ban districts, the CFS says they expect to make an announcement about those starting dates before the end of this month. It's 11 minutes past 12. Well, there's been a close eye on relations with China over recent times as conversation with our two governments have opened up. Back in August, of course, the tariff on barley was dropped after three years and there's hopes that further tariffs on seafood and wine, two hugely important industries in our state, could shift. Earlier this week, I spoke with the South Australian Premier Peter Malinowskis about his recent trade delegation to China and whether that had helped ease that door back open for local exporters. Penny Wong is Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs and Tom Mann asked her how significant China's decision to drop the barley tariff has been. I think your listeners would know how important it is economically. Obviously, a big boost to regional economies, having those trade impediments removed and having that market open up again. And, you know, we're really pleased that after a lot of work, a lot of engagement, that uh, we were able to see the Chinese government remove those impediments. Obviously, there's more work to do. Uh, And one of the things we've been doing in the 
year and a bit since we've been elected is to try and stabilise the relationship with China, recognise that there are things we're going to disagree on, things we do, we can cooperate on, uh, and to keep engaging in our national interest and to make sure we keep pressing for and working through removal of these trade barriers. And obviously these are, you know, uh, complex and delicate matters, but can this be seen as a possible further easing of tariffs for seafood and wine with China? Yeah, and I know how important that is to South Australia. Um, I've said very clearly to China, and so has um, Prime Minister Albanese, look, we want all of the trade impediments removed. We obviously found an off-ramp, a process to, to deal with the barley process um, to, to get those impediments removed and, and we are seeking to do the same thing for wine and for, for other markets. Uh, obviously this does take time but uh, you know at least we're engaging and making progress and part of how that's occurred is because you know we, we've chosen to take a, a calm and considered approach to engaging with China rather than the sort of unfortunate yelling we saw prior to the last election from the previous government. That is Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs, Penny Wong, and she was speaking earlier there with Tom Mann. You with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, if you've never heard of a super pangenome, you're probably not alone. It's a new direction for genetic research, which has some wide-ranging benefits for agricultural crops. Vanika Gurk is a research fellow at the Centre for Crop and Food Innovation at Murdoch University in Perth, and Karen Hunt asked her to explain the concept. Super pangenome is one of the approaches to capture all the diversity present within a crop and its wild relatives. A super pangenome takes genetic information from not just one individual, but many individuals, revealing the incredible diversity and adaptations that exist in the larger genetic family of a species. So in the context of crops, super pangenome refers to cataloging the entire genetic diversity present within a genus, that is, combining information from the crops we grow and their distant cousins. In agricultural terms, why is this an important tool for advancing research into grains and other crops? Pangenome is really crucial in understanding the genetic diversity within a species. It has direct implications for crop breeding, pathogen resistance, and adaptability to environmental changes. When you understand the pangenome, it can help identify resistance genes that might be absent in varieties grown by farmers, but present in their wild relatives. These genes can then be harnessed to breed crops that are more resistant to specific diseases. Or by investigating the pangenome, we can identify genes responsible for adaptability to various environmental stressors like drought, salinity, or extreme temperatures. Then with the knowledge of the pangenome, breeders can make informed decisions when crossing different varieties to introduce or combine desired traits. By using the pangenome, we can develop crop varieties that require fewer resources like less water, less added fertilizer, which can lessen our environmental impact. So is this research throwing up any new directions for research into different crops? Recently, super pangenome of tomato was reported, which helped identify the genes associated with 
flavor-related traits, and fruit metabolites. Pangenome research is a game changer. It is offering fresh insights into genetics and evolution and promising innovations in crop improvement. Pangenomes generate massive information. This information generated can be used to identify genes for developing modern crop cultivars, which have higher yield and better adaptability to changing climatic scenarios. And is that so, across uh, many different sorts of plants? I have read that pangenomes have been developed for watermelons, chickpeas, yeah. tomatoes you mentioned. Is that now the direction that it's taking for all plant crops? Initially, people were working on identifying the genome sequences, but now they are moving towards pangenomes thanks to the advanced technologies that now pangenomes for so many species are available, super pangenome for tomato, but pangenomes for rice, wheat, and our group also published a chickpea pangenome in 2021. And now we are exploiting that pangenome information along with GRDC to develop better chickpea varieties. How far along is this research and is it developing into a commercial end at this time? For our centre, we are developing a super pangenome for chickpea. Chickpea is a very important legume crop. So we have already reached the stage where we know of genes that are absent in our cultivated chickpea means they are absent in the varieties grown by farmers. But these genes were present in chickpeas' wild relatives. And these genes are related to disease resistance. We have already reached this stage, and hopefully we will publish our results soon in the public domain so that other research communities and industry can harness it. And would that lead to breeders then using that information to breed new strains of chickpeas? Yes, Is this research used specifically in plant species or can it also be used in animal species? So the concept of pangenome can be applied in human and animal research as well. In fact, the term pangenome was given in 2005 for studying different bacterial strains. And earlier this year, researchers have released a human pangenome that can captures substantially more diversity from different human populations than that was previously available. That's research fellow, fellow Vanika Girk there from the Centre for Crop and Food Innovation at Murdoch University, speaking out super pangenomes to Karen Hunt. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. We've been been putting any fences up on your property recently what kind of materials have you been using well one southeast business has started making a recycled plastic version of hardwood timber fence droppers after a request from farmers in the region who couldn't source any elsie adamo headed out to ecoplast australia the factory where owner willie vanderkirk was hard at work and he says the business has transitioned from recycled furniture to specializing in fencing product as demand has increased yeah, so we started about three years ago. I was moved by that Warren Waste show that was on ABC. And uh, we started off and we experimented with quite a few different products. Um, and we landed initially on outdoor furniture, like benches, picnic tables, that sort of thing, and also the fence droppers. And we've been doing that now for about two years and to the point now where we've switched exclusively to the droppers. And we've added, also added just recently a new, new a larger batten size dropper as well. So that's to replace hardwood fence droppers, which are pretty hard to come by in the region at the moment. Yeah, so the first one is just a normal poly dropper, which everybody's familiar with, and we've been making those. And then a lot of guys approached us and said, look, can we make something as a direct replacement, the exact same size as a hardwood dropper? 
because um, they, they've just been struggling to get their hands on it. So yeah, we've uh, just introduced in the last month or so the new uh, the polybatten, which is a bigger dropper effectively that's drilled and used exactly the same as, as a conventional uh, timber dropper. Yeah, are there any, apart from it not being timber, are there any other major differences? Will it last a similar amount of time? Can it pretty much do the exact same job? Um, it can do, well, what I've, they, there's lots of farmers that use different applications for the timber dropper, but yeah, we, uh, we guarantee them for 40 years, so uh, they probably should last longer than, than a hardwood dropper. They are very sturdy. What helps as well, they, they're great if you want to electrify, so they, they don't conduct electricity. And they're all UV stabilised, so they yeah, hold up to the, the weather well. So people ask you for this product. What's the interest been so far? What are your plans for the product? Well, we've just started uh, our marketing on the new product. Uh, and on a smaller scale, we've got our first sort of show uh, at Malau in, in, a, in a week and a half's time. But then we'll, we'll also be at the, the Southeast Field Days uh, a bit later. Sort of, uh, There has been a, a fair bit of interest, particularly sort of more in the southern regions for the baton. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, uh, we, we're excited to share it with more people. And that's from businesses, farmers that haven't been able to find them themselves? It has, yeah. So we've uh, a lot of the for some farmers and a lot of the rural retailers have reached out to us and said, look, they just struggle to get hardwood droppers. Ours is, is a very very cost effective alternative while sort of doing something good for the environment. So all, all our stuff is recycled plastic, and it's worth mentioning. So our, our droppers has about seven milk bottles worth of plastic in there, and our battens nine milk bottles, and about each of them about twenty bottle lids as well. Yeah. Yeah, can you explain a bit for the listeners who might not understand how they're made here in your factory? What's the process? Okay, well, when we started off, we had to experiment with a lot of different plastics and what worked and what didn't work. So the plastic type we use is HDPE, and our main sources for that is then milk bottles and bottlets, uh, and we have a wide range of collection areas, and we stretch all the way from, from Melbourne to Adelaide is, is our main source areas, and we also have a, a drop-off point here in, in Mount Gambia. So all of these are blended together in the right ratio, and then UV stabilizer is added, and then it enters our process where it's gradually heated up, put through the extruder, melted down, uh, pushed through a mold, and then it's cooled and afterwards it's then just cut and, and slotted and cut to length. And how many of the droppers can you make in a day? So it varies between product uh, type, but yeah, it's, it's somewhere between 1,200 and 1,600 a day. And have any local fencing businesses reached out? Or are you maybe going to be sourcing them directly? Uh, we have had a couple of uh, fencing contractors that's reached out for, to us, but by and large, our, our biggest uh, um, outlet is through the um, rural retailers like the Elders, Nutrien, uh, those sort of guys. You'd be hoping that it becomes more common using recycled materials along with the traditional timber? Yeah, so our, our vision is we just want to be considered in, in fencing applications. Obviously, horses for courses and again we're quite excited about the impact we can make so for example last year we recycled more than 20 tons worth of waste plastic um, so which is, is, is we we're quite excited about that is the owner of eco plus australia willie vanderkirk and he was speaking there to elsie adamo and i know elsie's keen to speak to anyone uh particularly maybe you're having trouble sourcing 
fencing material or products at the moment, let us know. Maybe you're aware of some other alternatives to hardwood droppers or fencing products that you are aware of or utilising at the moment. What are they? I'd love to hear from you. one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or send us a text on zero four six seven nine double two. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau now. It is 24 minutes past 12. Vince Rollins is our forecaster today. Hello, Vince. Hello, Selena. What's the weather story out there today? Yeah, we're certainly uh, seeing things fine up today. So we've got that high-pressure system has now moved to a position south of of the state. So we're in a a south-easterly to easterly uh, airstream over the state at the moment. So, yeah, it's starting to see those showers clear away. So just looking at, yes, like up until uh, 9am this morning, the, the rainfall saw a little bit around the, the southern agricultural area and just extending into parts of, well, eastern parts of the northern ags as well. But uh, so some good falls around the Mount Lofty Ranges, getting up to about uh, 30 millimetres uh, at Sutton Creek, which was, uh, yeah, pretty good rainfall for up in the hills. And uh, elsewhere, generally, we're just looking at sort of um, 2 to 10 millimetres. So, uh, yeah, some good little falls in, in some locations, but yeah, mainly about the, the southern agricultural area. But a little bit around uh, this morning, we haven't uh, gauged much at all. I think the most we've seen is 0.6 at Cleve so far, just in that southeasterly onshore airstream. But uh, yeah, it's still got a little bit of cloud sitting around the south, but uh, eventually we'll see that uh, start to clear away over the next uh, next day or so. And looking at pretty much clear skies uh, as we head into the weekend as that high just very slowly moves eastwards. It's not moving too quickly, so it's really going to be the dominant feature for our weather pattern right through until uh, Wednesday next week when we start to see the next trough moving across. So that will move across the western parts on Wednesday and the remainder of the, the state on Thursday before we start to see the next high coming in behind it. So what that means for us is that, yeah, generally, as I mentioned um pretty much fine weather across the, the weekend and early next week. There is a very slight risk we could see some elevated thunderstorm activity over western parts of the northwest pastoral district on Sunday and up in the far northeast on Monday with a bit of an infeed of moisture. But uh, you shouldn't see too much rainfall with those uh, those storms. But uh, yeah, generally elsewhere looking fine. But with those clear skies and lighter winds overnight, we will see some pretty cold starts to the day. So uh, yeah, we do have uh, some frosty mornings on the way over the weekend and we do have a frost warning out uh, for tomorrow for the mid-north and upper southeast forecast districts and uh, you've also got sheep grazers uh, warning out too for several districts so just uh, be aware of, of that but yeah elsewhere looking at as I said looking at fine conditions winds gradually swinging round to the northwest over the latter part of the, the weekend and early next week so we see temperatures starting to creep up, initially getting back to, to around average and then uh, going a little bit above average just ahead of that trough. But uh, as we usually get, once that trough goes through, winds start to swing back around to the southwest and uh, yeah, bringing some cooler conditions. Should bring a little bit of shower activity uh, about the southern agricultural area as well on Thursday and Friday next week, but at this stage not looking at uh, any real significant rainfall as that system comes through. So, yeah, it's looking, um, yeah, some cold mornings, uh, but some beautiful days on the way and, uh, yeah, not much rainfall. We'll just have to wait and see how this next system goes as it comes through uh, towards the end of, well, middle to end of next week.
All right. Thanks for that, Vince. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. Okay, thank you. Vince Rollins there from the Weather Bureau. So taking a look at the western inland of New South Wales and the forecast for tomorrow. For the upper western district, it'll be a sunny day with southeasterly winds, 20 to 30 k's an hour, with overnight temperatures falling between 7 and 11 degrees, with daytime temperatures between 22 and 27. For the lower western district, sunny with patches of frost in the far east uh, expected in the early morning. Winds will be southeasterly, 15 to 25 k's an hour, becoming light in the evening with overnight temperatures falling to between 3 and 6 with daytime temperatures reaching the low 20s. It is coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. Coming up in this next half an hour, we will take a focus on water, uh, the water around the Menindee Lakes, but also uh, what the state government is saying about the potential for water buybacks out of the River Murray as well. And are you noticing, well, snakes around at the moment? I don't know, it just seems like there are a lot of snake sightings happening. Is there a likelihood with mice populations and flooding from last year that there are more snakes around this year? Well, we'll take a look at that in this coming half an hour as well. You're with Selena Green on The Country Hour today. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Well, hi there. A lot to come on The Country Hour today. And I want to know, have you been seeing lots of snakes around this spring? Does it feel to you like there's some more out and about this year? I'd like you to share your sneaky encounters on my talkback number, which is 1300 891. Or you can text them in on 0467-922-891. I'm going to ask an expert if uh, last year's floods around the river and this year's growing mice populations means that there could be or that you are more likely to bump into a snake at the moment. And hooray for mango lovers, some good news for you. There's three new varieties of mangoes ready to hit Australian supermarket shelves and they've got some pretty groovy names. One is called Yes, the Yes Mango. The second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the Yes one is called Aha. The latest season one, which comes in after the first two, is called the Now Mango. So we've got Yes, Aha and Now. More on that to come very shortly. That's coming up. But before that, Matt Coleman has got news for you. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, a man who killed a 70-year-old during a road rage fight in Adelaide CBD has been found not guilty of murder. Francois-Joseph Gassibi had been standing trial, accused of murdering Brian Maxwell Richardson during a road rage fight in the middle of Adelaide's West Terrace in April last year. Gassibi previously pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the basis of excessive self-defence. New ramping data shows that South Australians spent 11.6% less time waiting outside hospitals during the month of September compared to August. Ambulances were ramped up to 3,290 hours in September, a reduction from August's figure of 3,721. 67.6% of Priority 1 callouts in metropolitan Adelaide arrived within the target time, compared to 52.4% this time last year. And the state government has cancelled the performance 
performance of a Russian dance troupe at an upcoming multicultural festival. The group of six to 20-year-olds was notified of the removal by the Minister for Multicultural Affairs, Zoe Bettison. The minister says the decision was made to protect traumatised Ukrainian refugees attending the event. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. So we'll start with water this afternoon. Water is a touchy subject up and down the Darling River, and then you throw in the Murray-Darling Basin plan in the mix. Well, Federal Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young holds the balance of power in the Senate and has the leverage to make modifications in the upcoming vote over the Water Amendment Restoring Our Rivers Bill 2023. Senator Hanson-Young travelled to Menindee in the far west of New South Wales yesterday to meet with a group of locals and get a tour of the area ahead of a vote which could change the way that the Murray-Darling Basin is managed. Well, we know that the Murray-Darling Basin plan is not working. It's uh, not going to meet its uh, due dates and the river system is still in crisis. We've got a river that is still sick after a decade and billions of dollars being spent. As a South Australian, this is important to keep the river alive. It's fundamental to the drinking water of Adelaide, to our environment in South Australia. But here in Menindee, we, we understand, you know, these guys live at the bottom of the, of the Darlings. They understand the impacts of living at the bottom of the river. Too much water is still being extracted. Not enough water is being saved for the environment. Our fish are dying, our birds are uh, in trouble and our river needs more help. What was the sort of process to get you here today? Yeah. Well, uh, the Parliament is uh, in the midst of debating the Minister's proposal to kick the can down the road. The due dates have been missed, they want an extension for the homework uh, and they need to get that past the Senate. Um, I'm not interested in rubber stamping anything. I want to see a real change and a real uh, commitment to making sure we fix things. I don't want to see another wasted decade. I don't want to see another wasted year. I don't want to see another waste of uh, money and, uh, and, and, and community sentiment. The community here, uh, I've been here before. I've, I was out here in the first fish kill. I saw how devastating it was to the environment and to the community itself. And I wanted to make sure that these, the people here, the community here, uh, have a voice in Canberra too. What are you hearing from locals? What have they been telling you? Well, they're desperate for things to change. They don't want more of the same. Uh, they want a commitment to environmental flows and real water coming down the river so that they can keep the lakes alive, they can make sure there's no more fish kills, keep feeding the soul of the community. I think, and rightly so, people in this community feel abandoned. They were abandoned the first time round. Uh, in the negotiations over the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. They were abandoned during the fish kills and they don't want to be abandoned again. On that, um, I'm sure it's been mentioned a few times, um, the Northern Basin of New South Wales as well. Did you sort of have much background knowledge on the Northern Basin? Obviously, South Australian, mm. you'd be all over what's happening in the South, but up yes. here in the North? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been um, you know, following this issue for a long time. I was uh, in the Parliament debating the Murray-Darling Basin Plan when it first came in uh, over a decade ago. And I was worried then that uh, the environment was sold short and that downstream communities were being set up to fail. And sadly, a decade later, it, that is what we're seeing. We're seeing the fruits of that. Too much greed. There's too much greed. And when you go the, uh, further and further upstream, 
more water is being extracted than is fair and it's le it's leaving the river sick down below and whether that's in South Australia uh, or here and uh, I think we've really got to tackle that. The whole point of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was an agreement that we had to save the river so that it could flow. We had to save the river so that everyone could rely on it. Um, but, you know, industry, corporate irrigation, big business, political interests have had too much say over where the water goes and who gets it, and it's small communities and the environment that, have, that, have, that are being sold out. That is the Federal Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young speaking with Bill Oman in Menindee yesterday. Well, sticking with water, if you've been hearing more about water buybacks again this week, well, that's because there's a Senate committee inquiry into the federal government's Murray-Darling Basin Plan proposal. Well, what does the South Australian government think about reintroducing this controversial but voluntary measure? Well, the South Australian Minister for Water, Susan Cloyce, says some irrigators in the state want to sell their water to meet environmental targets, but it's important to have a united strategy. She told Julie Kimberley she's working on a scheme to minimise negative impacts to communities from buybacks. So first of all, I am working with many irrigators and irrigation trusts and industry so that we can put together a state-agreed view about how a buyback scheme might be designed in order to minimise impact. I know communities are anxious. I truly understand that this is not something that communities in the Riverland are assuming will just be fine. Yep, yep, some people sell some water and it'll be good. I understand that there's anxiety. So I'm working with them to say, well, if the federal government goes ahead, changes the law, opens up a, a voluntary system for buying water, how should we design it so that we think that will have the minimal impact on our communities or no impact? So we're working through that at the moment. But yes, there are certain irrigators who are interested in being able to sell their water for the environment. They can sell their water to anybody else. They can sell their water to a company that's owned in China for example. But at the moment they can't sell the water for the 450 and we have people who, who would actually like to sell a portion. I've even had a Liberal MP phone my office asking on behalf of a constituent how they can sell the water for the environment. So it, of course there's an appetite for that but not just in South Australia. We're not delivering the 450 gigalitres. The eastern states use far more water than we do. We are far more efficient than they are. We've delivered everything that we've been asked to by the plan. They haven't. So the onus is really on them to sell their water. And the, the higher up they, they sell it in the southern basin, the more benefit in the environment as it washes through. So while I'm, I'm aware that there will be people in the Riverland who will want to sell and will choose to be part of this, and uh, that's why I want to make sure the scheme is designed in the best possible way, let's not assume this is about South Australia saving the Murray-Darling Basin because we've done a lot of heavy lifting there. We've over-delivered on everything we've been asked to do. But the other states, not so much. So what we need to do is those, those irrigators who are not using water efficiently interstate sell some of their water. They'll be able to put it back into their community and make their own production more efficient. That's great. The water goes into the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. As the next drought arrives, because in Australia it's always around the corner, we will be far better off than we were in the millennium drought, which was such a disaster for everybody, but particularly for South Australia.
That is South Australia's Minister for Water, Susan Close, speaking there with Julie Kimberley. So what do irrigators think? Well, Ben Hazlitt manages Woolanook Fruit Farms at Murtho in the Riverland. He told Julie Kimberley that irrigators would like to see more innovation in the delivery of environmental water. I think there's some things that food producers agree on, uh, especially in South Australia, and there's some things with those statements that we uh, absolutely do not agree on. Uh, The first one is we absolutely agree you need a healthy working river. No question at all. And as a food producing group in SA, we've been supportive of that the whole way through. We fully understand we need a healthy river to be able to enable it to work. But this is actually not so simple as it's made to sound. It's not 450 gigalitres for a start that still uh, they're looking for. Uh, in actual fact, there's several hundred as part of the original plan still to go. And then they do, they buy what's called uh, cap equivalents. So in real terms for the actual licences, it's something like 850 gigalitres to go. So it's not a small number. Um, We're not seeing any innovation with environmental watering plans on how to deliver water to the environment. That's actually meant to be 3,200 gigalitres of water total um, equivalent environmental outcomes. So there really should be some innovation there. They're asking irrigators to be innovative. I'm not seeing any way that the environment uh, watering plan is being made to be innovative. And to some degree, some of the problems we all hear about in the Kurong, in the southern Kurong, has got nothing to do with the Murray. That was to do with us draining the uh, southern areas of our state for cattle and sheep, which is fine, but it's not water going to the southern Kurong. So there's like, some things that are not quite adding up there. The other, the other part is water from interstate. Yes, the minister says we've done lots of work in this state. We've uh, pressurised pipes. We've done lots of work. But water bought from interstate hurts us just the same uh, because during a drought, uh, that means the bucket is smaller. Uh, other things not mentioned, they can't actually deliver that water, environmental water to South Australia. They need 80,000 megalitres a day to get over the bank flows. They can't do that unless there's a natural flood. And so buying more water at this stage, there is no evidence to show that they can actually deliver it. In fact, the last 10 years, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder hasn't used the water it's got once. That's Woolanook Fruit Farms manager Ben Hazlitt speaking there with Julie Kimberley. It's 18 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, there are a few inevitabilities in spring. Flowers bloom, magpies swoop and the snakes are slithering. Does it seem to you like there's more around this year? Anecdotally, I've heard from lots of people seeing snakes so far this year. I've bumped into a few copperheads myself recently. With some high mice numbers being reported in parts of the state, could it be a bumper snake season? Well, let's ask Dr Carl Hilliard, who is the Principal Ecologist with our Department of Environment and Water. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. Is it our imagination or is it possibly that we are seeing more snakes around this spring? Look, I I think this recent spell of warm weather that's been um, coming through is probably... um, let a few more snakes to be active, which has probably brought it into our attention a little bit more than what it might normally be. So I'm, I'm not sure that there's, there's, there's specifically more. Um, I know we've had you know, not bad rains and things the last couple of years, depending on where people are in the countryside, but that may have seen uh, some good resources to feed snakes and perhaps helped more snake breeding in you know, the last year or so. So you know, maybe there's more, but it's also a time of year we know when snakes become much more prevalent in the landscape. As you say, some parts of the state did get a pretty good start to winter. I know here in the southeast where I'm based, I can hear all the frogs and see all the tadpoles. Uh, there's still a bit of water around. That is good food for the oh, snakes. Absolutely. Yeah, things like frogs, 
uh, mice, all great things um, for us, mate, to eat, absolutely. So um, when those things are doing well, it does create really good conditions for snakes. What about the areas of the state, uh, particularly around the, uh, the River Murray, where there was flooding um, some time back? Would that have had an impact lightly on snake populations in that area? Well, I think it's reasonable to expect that those, um, the good plant growth and, and um, those changes that occurred from the floods and the environment have probably led to you know, production of um, a variety of plants that things like uh, rats and mice like to eat. And then if they breed up well, then um, snakes tend to follow afterwards if they've been able to manage to survive the floods. And we know lots of snakes are really good swimmers. Um, so it's entirely plausible that snakes are having a good, good season in that part of the world. And mice there, you mentioned, I know that Persa has told us there are parts of the state where we are starting to see some high mouse numbers and, and farmers are needing to deal with that at the moment. That is something that snakes like and that's probably a good thing and I guess a reminder that they are a, a good predator for those uh, those mice populations. Oh, oh look, absolutely. You know, if snakes in the wrong place are obviously a concern to us, but you know, in many circumstances, snakes do a great service. In our landscape, I'm helping to control rats and mice and those sort of vermin that we just really don't want around. So, you know, it's important to you know, be snake smart, think and, and, and pay attention to the fact that snakes are about this time of year. But at the same time, they're, um, you know, there's something uh, that, that do a good service for us at the same time. Now, I know that there are a few different uh, snake varieties that you can come across depending on where you are in the state. The ones that people are most likely to be spotting, what would they be at the moment? Oh, look, it, it, it's a big state and we've, we've got quite a few different snake species around the place. But I, I think, um, you know, things like brown snakes are quite common if you're about water, uh, about coastal areas, uh, tiger snake species, uh, red-bellied black snakes are probably the more common ones that people might encounter and um, need to be aware of. And, you know, most of our snakes, um, unfortunately, people who don't like them so much, uh, are venomous. So we've only got a handful of non-venomous snakes. So any snake which people encounter, they should treat it though it, it is, in fact, um, something that's potentially dangerous to them. The rules around what you can and can't do with a snake. So, uh, you know, if they're out there happily feasting on the mice and keep helping keeping those numbers under control, this is all good. In what situation is someone able to perhaps deal with a snake if it is causing a problem? Look, um, people are able to deal with snakes if there's a genuine need to do so but it's one thing we know that um you know while legally that might be permissible at the same time we know that's when people tend to get bitten by snakes when people encounter them so it is one of those things that um where possible that's best left to a professional snake catcher um but otherwise you know we really recommend that that people do their best to remove themselves their children their pets away from the snake let it go about its business let it move on and um you know keep yourself safe and uh, a reminder, I guess, for especially all about any of our farmers or those on the land listening, that a good snake kit, uh, your snake bandage and all that sort of thing is an absolute must-have in your first aid kit, and especially if you think you might be waiting a while for help to arrive. Look, absolutely. So, um, you know, having your first aid training, having access to the right sort of uh, bandages, pressure mobilisation bandages, is vital. Treating every snake bite like it's a real um, envenomating snake bite and getting yourself medical attention promptly, knowing yourself or others, getting onto triple zero, um, especially can wherever you are located and seeking that medical assistance urgently on the assumption that it is a real thing and your life could be in danger is, is really important. Oh, when are we expecting the snakes to uh, head off back into their, their hibernation? How many sort of months does this last where they really are out and about active? The peak of summer isn't necessarily the best time for a snake. It can be too warm for the snakes, so it depends where you are across the country. Um, but snake activity tends to peak this sort of time through spring, 
might taper off or level out a little bit through summer, perhaps pick up again as, as the weather moderates in autumn and then tapers off as that cools off into winter. So, look, I think we're in that period where we can expect, you know, we've, we've got a good six-plus months of um, snake activity when we should be really attentive, but you know, it is good to remind people that snakes have the potential to be active all year round as well. So keeping them in the back of your mind, you know, um, making good choices, avoiding long grass, avoid putting your hands into places you can't see if, if you can, um, managing waste, managing fruit trees, managing compost piles, these sorts of things are all good ways to keep yourself safe uh, from snakes as best you can. Carl, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour this afternoon. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Lena. Dr. Carl Hilliard there, Principal Ecologist with the Department of Environment and Water. A couple of texts that have come through. A text that says, I've had a big and a small snake seen here at north of Melrose. Uh, Stuart said he's said an eastern brown snake eating a bird at Pinkerton Plains. Almost stepped on a baby snake uh, going for a walk around Mount Gabby's Blue Lake the other night. It was in the evening. Didn't expect it. Didn't stick around to see where its mum was. Uh, Alicia called in to say she had a snake encounter. They were visiting Halls Gap uh, in Western Victoria last week. They saw two brown snakes on the same walking tracks. One was highly aggressive, wouldn't move on. Uh, everyone there was safe, but it caused a bit of excitement for the four kids in the group who'd never seen a snake in the wild before. I don't think you ever forget that moment you first see your first snake in the wild. Funnily enough, Alicia, I um, do a bit of running and I was over at the back of Hall's Gap in the middle of winter last year out running a, a running event and the woman in front of me actually stepped on a snake. Um, she danced on top of it for a little bit. <laughs> I don't know who was more shocked and terrified, her or the snake, but luckily no one was injured and both took off in opposite directions. But it just goes to show they can be around any time of the year. Not necessarily more of them this year, but they're liking the warm weather, so they are out and about. Just be aware of that. If you have had an encounter, or maybe you are noticing a bit more around your place, let us know. one three hundred triple two eight nine one or that text line 0467-922-891. You're with Selena Green. It is just going on 10 minutes to one. Now, you might not be aware that some common flowers and plants can be toxic to animals. For example, did you know if sheep eat rhododendron leaves, they can become very sick. It can even be fatal. Bess Morgan is a veterinarian based in northern Tasmania. She offers some important advice on being aware of these potentially toxic plants and items. I suppose there's a, a range of garden plants and obviously plants you have in your house. Common ones in the house that we see are, are things like lilies and tulips and daffodils. Uh, I suppose more garden plants are things like um, rhododendron, oleander and rhubarb, uh, lantana. They're sort of common common garden plants that we, we see uh, livestock and that can be exposed to. And also for domestic animals, cats and dogs, you have seen instances where they've eaten these toxic plants? Yes, we have. Probably less so compared to sort of ruminants, but definitely um, certain certain plants like cats and lilies, definitely a common thing that vets see semi-regularly. And then just dogs are a little bit more game with what they eat in and around the household so that can yeah that can sort of go either way what is it about the lily that can damage the cat well i think uh the main sort of thing that it causes is acute renal failure i suppose the big risk with lilies is that it can go from ingestion down to sort of even just contact uh, you know brushing their face licking a leaf that sort of thing it's it's pretty highly toxic so if you have a cat do not bring any lilies into the house. No, I would. I definitely would advise against it. Other things can be like aloe vera. That can definitely cause sort of local toxicity in the mouth and the, the gastrointestinal tract. Sago palms, like cycads, they're super 
toxic. Probably the common thing is particularly dogs that have uh, either eaten mouldy bread and or have raided the compost um, and sometimes like chicken feed, that sort of thing that's been sitting around and exposed to air that accumulate mould. Yeah, we see this pretty regularly, particularly in sort of dogs that are, you know, grazers and, you know, Labradors and those really gluttonous sort of dogs. <laughs> and what sort of symptoms do they have if they've eaten mould? They get a sort of neurological twitch um, and it can kind of start there and then lead to they can get full-blown seizures and quite severe cases they can end up seizuring and, and overheat and become very critical. What are some other household items that could be toxic? Um, well, I suppose our baits that we lay are, are pretty common. Obviously, rat bait everyone's pretty up to speed with. Um, probably the, the more worrying bait that dogs are exposed to is snail bait this just is a much more rapid onset and very generally a pretty poor prognosis dogs don't generally go well if they eat snail bait i suppose then other things around the household are just human medications that get access to basically um you know things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen can cause renal failure and that sort of thing leading up to you know antidepressant and that could cause uh certain yeah neurological signs to gastro signs Bess, if one of your animals is showing signs of toxicity, what should you do? I suppose gold standard would be to uh, get to a vet straight away. Um, it depends on what we're dealing with, what the animal is and, and what it's eaten or come in contact with. These signs can range from really uh, mild stuff to, you know, being lethargic, a bit drooly, a um, little bit off their food up to, you know, pretty severe seizures, cardiac collapse, that sort of thing. So it, it all depends on what we're dealing with. But essentially any toxicity, you generally want to act pretty quick and, and get it to the vet. Some good advice there from veterinarian Bess Morgan. Hello to Sully, who's at Millel in the southeast and on the text line talking about snakes. She says, hi, Selena. Thank you. We've only seen two snakes this year. They were warming themselves on the Bitumen Road many kilometres from our home during those mid-20-temperature uh, days of spring so far. Certainly a reminder they still exist. She said, we've got huge respect for snakes. They're an important part of the ecosystem. Well, finally today, as the mango season heats up in northern Australia, keep your eyes peeled in the supermarket for some new varieties. And as Matt Brand reports, these three new mangoes have been decades in the making. Do the mango bango, we all go bongo for Around 25 years ago, the National Mango Breeding Program created three new varieties of mango, which promised to taste great, look better, yield better, and have a bunch of other positive attributes. But for years, these mangoes languished on research farms and their commercial rollout was bungled a few times. But last year, the company Mambaloo Mangoes was awarded the commercialisation rights and these mangoes will now be seen in supermarkets this season and they've finally got names. One is called Yes, the Yes Mango. The second one that usually um, is mature a little later than the Yes one is called Aha. The latest season one, which comes in after the first two, is called the Now Mango. So we've got Yes, Aha and Now. That is Marie Picconi from Mambaloo Mangoes, who says more trees are being planted and she thinks these mangoes have got a big future. The good news is that all three varieties have flowered very well in all the production regions and there's crops sitting on the tree. Uh, we're expecting double the production that we had last year out of the three new project flavour mangoes. Um, we think they've got a tremendous future. So um, it's, it's going well. We've got lots of demand from export markets. We're really just sending samples at the moment because... Right. 
we've got to we've got to get the trees in the ground um, all growing up so that the the yield and the production volumes are higher um, and there are new plantings going in so that we can just meet the demand as it's growing we're going to try to grow with the demand here in Australia and in global markets Raymond Bin is a mango grower in far north Queensland and back in 2010 he was one of the first to sign up to these hybrid varieties and plant some trees. He told Charlie McKillop that he's long believed in them and is excited to finally see the commercial rollout. Look, the names are definitely, people would just say that they're different. Like everyone that you say to, they do sort of, it takes them back. Yeah, they are different names, but um, on saying that, they are catchy for that reason. And I think, look, it may actually hit the mark. Like they're very simple names and um, yeah look it may just just work so yeah I, I think it's a great idea. You always believed in the potential of these hybrid varieties nothing in the in the the delays and the the setbacks has has shaken that confidence? Look the trees haven't changed through all that time that the trees have always remained the same so your belief in the actual the manga that comes off them that doesn't change. I guess where things became unknown was everything else around it is in the fact of, yeah, at the beginning there, like I couldn't get the trees from where they're supposed to come to. The company that was taken on the marketing, well, I don't think they were really geared up to do the job that was required. So there was a few years lost there. So look, it does, from a grower's point of view, it does it just makes you feel very uncertain about how things are going to pan out and it does make you concerned because, like, my belief in the mango hasn't ever changed, but, yeah, the marketing side has been real my real concern. And, look, seeing that Manbalu uh, came on board, like, they did come on board, um, did a bit last year, and, like, it, look, it has been positive, I have to say. Like, the changes that happened, it was a complete turnaround to what has happened in the past. So, yeah, as a grower, I'm more than happy. That is Raymond Bin, who's a mango grower from far north Queensland, and that report by Matt Brandt. So keep an eye out for those new mango varieties, the yes, the aha, and the now. Uh, now we need to check in with Jason Chong because he'll be on your radio on this Friday afternoon. Hi, Jason. Hello. It seems like a, a, a lovely Friday afternoon. We're going to cover a whole bunch of topics today from pain management. That's going to be at the start of the show. We're going to end the show with Fat Bear Week. <laughs> so, Please explain. So it's going to be an absolute roller coaster. Well, Fat Bear Week is a week like Shark Week in the US. Ah. Um, but the, the bears are, are about to go into hibernation. So they're getting fat so that they can go to sleep for a couple of months. And there's a competition uh, where you can vote on the fattest bear. <laughs> Fat, fat bear of the year? I don't know oh, what it's called. It's not very PC, but I mean, that's my excuse as well. It's a bear though. We, we can call him Chunky and no one's going to get upset. Bear. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants an upset bear. Absolutely. Uh, oh, well, I love that. Well, you have a great Friday show. You too. Jason Chong there. He'll be bringing you the show this afternoon. So stick around for that on your radio. Thanks so much for your company today. Thanks for those who called and text through with your sneaky stories today uh, and for your company throughout the week. You can keep across all of the greatest and latest rural news on our website, abc.net.au. 
rnz.org.au forward slash rural. Uh, you can also catch up on any of the action that you've missed from the country hour throughout the week by hopping on the ABC Listen app. That's a free app. You can go download that right now onto your smartphone and your tablet and go have a rustle around. There's a lot of great ABC audio content in there. It's news time now. It's one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.